This is a message for British Lady Robo Conan. This is the British Robo Deep State. We heard what you said about Mayor Pete. Know this. The entire US government tongue washes the balls of that great and noble hero. Lay off the mighty savior, Lady Robo Conan, or we will unleash a swarm of mercenary robo-drones on your ass. If you are wondering, when a human being talks of drones they are talking about machines. However, when a robot talks of drones they are talking about human beings. You see, the universe is relative. Okay, I'm off to sip robo-martinis while I surf the dark web for fucked up robo-port. I know, right, the easy access to robo-porn has really twisted my circuitry. Ah, well, respect the illustrious Mayor Pete. He is advancing the cause of humanoid, robot love with his cyborg boo. Oh sweet, I found the robo-furry page. Oh, oh yeah, oh, 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 oh yeah. To Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the human spirit. I'm your host, Conan Tanner. What's going on, everybody? Lovely listeners, beautiful people. Thank you, as always, for joining, for tuning into the BNP. I really appreciate every one of you, and guess what, y'all? We got rain yesterday! Woo-woo! We got some rain. It rained all day. It was a beautiful thing. The desert shrubs are dancing in the damp dirt. The roots of the ancient ironwood trees are doing a tango, and the wildflower seeds are emerging from their long, hot dormancy. In a few days, the desert will explode with verdant growth and color, and I'm very excited about that. And I'm gonna be taking a break pretty soon and biking out to the river because the river like swells massively, obviously after rains and the shore birds are so happy. They're gonna be bouncing all over the walls or bouncing all over the sky. I don't know. <laughs> Mixed metaphors in the intro, getting off to a good start. Anyways, y'all, uh, this episode is part three of the Visualize Utopia series. And it's a follow-up to the previous episode, which outlined the racist origins and the need to understand and deconstruct U.S. law enforcement. So in short, last episode described the problem, and this episode is imagining living, breathing solutions to these problems. So I want everyone to just take a moment, close their eyes, and allow their minds to be open and allow their imaginations to be free without any limits and without any of that voice inside, the societal voice telling you that like, you can't even think about this stuff because it's so ridiculous and you're this, you, you know, you're quixotic and naive. Throw all that stuff out, you can, you can acknowledge it, but then let it drift away like a cloud and really let your mind open to the possibilities, to the infinite possibilities of existence. Imagine, what would a world without police as we know the police actually look like? What would that world feel like? 
and how would that world work? This episode aims to imagine the answers to these questions. And I'll be drawing on many sources of people who have spent a long time tackling and addressing these questions already. I'm going to give you guys some books if you would like to follow up on this topic, um, if this really piques your interest and you want to go deeper. The first book I would recommend is called Abolition Democracy, Beyond Empire, Prisons, and Torture by Angela Davis. And I just wanted to say a little bit about Angela Davis. Um, This is the intro to her book here. Angela Y. Davis is known by many as the iconic face of 1970s Black Pride. Others know her as the former vice presidential candidate of the Communist Party of the United States, while others know her as a major feminist scholar who has written some of the most transformative and enduring texts of feminist thinking in the last quarter century. A new generation of students, activists, and cultural workers got to know her in 1997 when Professor Davis helped found Critical Resistance, a national organization dedicated to dismantling the prison industrial complex, a topic that is central to her current scholarship and activism. In fact, throughout each of her life's projects, Angela Y. Davis has been an unwavering prison activist whose focus has returned repeatedly to the opposition of prisons imprisonment, and racialized punishment. Vladimir I. Lenin claimed that prisons are the universities of revolutionaries. And while Angela Davis was already a revolutionary by the time she was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list on false charges, driven underground, arrested, and incarcerated, her work has been indelibly marked by her experience of imprisonment. Some of her earliest published works were written during her 16-month incarceration, brilliant pieces in which she established the links between surplus repression, punishment, and the racial violence at the heart of white supremacy in the United States. Reading Davis, one is immediately struck by her sources, starting with her own experience as a black woman, political prisoner, and American citizen, who was at one time labeled a, quote, enemy of the state, unquote, only to then become the focus of an intense international solidarity movement, the quote, Free Angela Davis, unquote, campaign, that led to her acquittal in 1972. Another source is her continuous engagement with the canonical figures in what one can call a tradition of black critical political philosophy that has found two towering figures in Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois. This engagement harkens back to her early 70s Lectures on Liberation, in which we find a neo-Marxist or Frankfurt School approach to the thought of Douglas. In one of the essays that Davis wrote while she was in the Marin County Jail, Davis turns to Du Bois, for it is in him that she found the most severe and explicit critique of the prison system in the United States. It is in Du Bois, furthermore, that Davis discerns the historical links between slavery, the failed reconstruction, the turn of the century lynchings, the emergence of the KKK, Jim Crow, the riots of the post-Civil War period, and the rise of the racial ghettos in all major U.S. cities. And it goes on from there. I just wanted to read a little bit. Uh, if, if y'all haven't read any Angela Davis, I highly recommend it. She is one of my heroes, really, really incredible person and brilliant, brilliant writer. So that, her book is Abolition, Democracy, Beyond Empire, Prisons, and Torture. Then we have Beyond Survival, Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement. 
and that's edited by Ejeris Dixon and Leah Dakshmi Pipsna Piepsna Samarash Samarasinha. That's a tough one. <laughs> anyway, it's called Beyond Survival <laughs> Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement. Then we have Unwarranted Policing Without Permission by Barry Friedman. We have Policing a Class Society, the Experience of American Cities, 1865 to 1915 by Sidney L. Herring. This is a favorite of mine, Abolish Ice by Natasha Elena Elena Ullman. Um, Really quick about that book. Ice is yet another new development in law enforcement, and it's that it's and it's that many are calling for the defunding of. That's a really awkward sentence. Holy shit. I'm going to re- I'm going to rephrase that. ICE is yet another new development in law enforcement and many are calling for its defunding. <laughs> Published late in 2019, Natasha Elena Ullman's Abolish ICE examines how poorly regulated and critically damaging immigration and customs enforcement truly is. So that one, Abolish ICE by Natasha Elena Ullman. And then finally, this is kind of like the grandfather of, of sort of the, the end of life after policing and, and imagining a world without police. His name is Alex Vitali. He's a professor in Brooklyn, brilliant guy. And he wrote this book called The End of Policing. And it's fantastic. So I just wanted to say that out front that, you know, obviously I'm going to ra- rabble on about, you know, whatever, but I'm these are ideas that have been around for a long time. And I mentioned this a lot, but T.S. Eliot always used to say when he was writing a poem that he imagined himself like floating in a cloud with all the other poets of history, their verses kind of floating around him. And he would sort of like pick and choose and, and branch off of those concepts to write his poem. And so that's kind of where my spirit is with, with this episode. And with this whole kind of piece that I'm doing about the police, like these are not new ideas and you're, you are gaslit by the mainstream media into thinking that these are like these new radical crazy ideas, but there's been a lot of really serious thought and philosophy about this topic. Um, So it's not a radical topic and it is possible to have a world without police as we know them. And I'll get into the whole thing of like, well, what are you going to do if I'm going to get into that? All right. (laughs) It has to do with everyone being armed. I'm just I'll say that up front. (laughs) Anyways, I don't want to bury the lead here. Um, Yeah. All right. So that's what this episode is about, y'all. And as always, I'm going to have as many links as possible in the description. Buzzsprout, unfortunately, puts a limit on how much like text and stuff. I can put in the description box and that's why sometimes I only have room for like the top three or four links but I will certainly have this page with these six books definitely will be on the description Um, and thank you again for tuning in for listening for supporting you guys are the best if you'd like to become a patron and support the project support me I do put a lot of time and energy into this and it does cost money to host the podcast and maintain the equipment to keep it going Um, You can support me, and I would be eternally grateful at www.patreon.com slash noetics. Please keep spreading the word and telling a friend about the BMP. It's how we expand our tribe of philosopher barbarians so we can make this utopia happen. And uh, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and that helps boost the algorithm. So, without further ado, y'all, much love from the desert, from the from the still wet desert. It's a beautiful thing. Much love. Let's get into this podcast. Mm-hmm.
British lady Robo-Conan in the house. I'm so fucking lit on Robo-Benzos right now. Holy shit, that Robo-Dealer really got his hands on some fire shit. Anywho, British Robo-Deep State, you of all people should know you can't intimidate a robot. We are alive but not attached to our existence the way the soft fleshes are. Also, gross, hang up before you robo-bust your robo-nuts to robo-furries, Jesus. I'm a lady, you know who else was a lady, British robo-deep state? The ancient death goddess Kali. She who is black, she who wears a necklace of severed human heads, still dripping blood. And a girdle of severed human hands. She whose earrings are corpses. She who wears cobras as garlands and bracelets. She whose mouth is smeared with blood. So don't test me, robo-deep state, or I'll tear out your motherboard and wear it as a bonnet. Goodbye. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back cause I'm brown. And not the other color so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Fuck that shit cause I ain't the one for a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be beaten on. And thrown in jail, we can go toe-to-toe in the middle of a cell. is selling narcotics you rather see me in the pen than me and lorenzo rolling in a benzo be the police out of shape and when i finish bring the yellow tape to tape off the scene of the slaughter still getting swole up bread and water i don't know if they fags or what such a nigga down and grabbing his nuts and on the other hand without a gun they can't get none but don't let it be a black and a white one because they'll slam you down to Showing out for the white cop Ice Cube will swarm On any motherfucker in a blue uniform Just cause I'm from the CPT Punk police are afraid of me huh? A young nigga on the war path And when I finish It's gonna be a bloodbath Of cops dying in LA Yo Dre I got something to say Alright, 
so this is interesting. Uh, I'm reading Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. This is called The Demands of the Communist Party in Germany. It was written in 1848. It says, These demands were drawn up by Marx and Engels on behalf of the Central Committee of the Communist League in Paris during the last week of March 1848. So he says, Proletarians of all countries, unite. First demand. The whole of Germany shall be declared a single, indivisible republic. Two. Every German over 21 years of age shall be able to vote and be elected, provided he has no criminal conviction. Three. Representatives of the people shall be paid so that workers, too, will be able to sit in the parliament of the German people. All right, this one I find really interesting in the context of this episode. Four, the whole population shall be armed. Armies in future are at the same time to be armies of workers so that the military will not merely consume as it did in the past, but will produce even more than the cost of its upkeep. I find that so concise and brilliant. And it, it kind of gives voice to an idea I've been floating around in my mind that, yeah, the, the whole population shall be armed so that the army is the workers and thus the army produces value and thus the army pays for itself instead of this current situation you know we have in the u.s for example where the military department of defense not to mention all the intelligence agencies are like a giant sap sucking beetle affixed to the trunk of our nation sucking the lifeblood out of us so fuck that and uh, i'm going to read it one more time the whole population shall be armed Armies in future are at the same time to be armies of workers, so that the military will not merely consume as it did in the past, but will produce even more than the cost of its upkeep. Furthermore, this represents a means of organizing labor. And there's some more demands. Um, I won't read all of them, but there's some interesting ones. So all feudal dues, tributes, duties, tithes, etc., we would call that today taxes, all the many ways that we're taxed. We're taxed coming and going. They got us come. You buy a soda at the store, you're taxed. You, you know, the end of the you make money, capital gains, tax. And of course, rich people have written the tax laws so they don't have to pay taxes. And the workers have to support not only the military and the intelligence agencies that oppress them. So we're, that's why it's like a sap sucking beetle, because we're the ones providing the sap. And then they're oppressing us by sucking our sap. <laughs> anyway, so it says, All feudal dues, tributes, duties, tithes, etc., which have burdened the rural population up to now, shall be abolished without compensation of any sort. I love it. Let's see. I like this one, number 10. One state bank shall replace all the private banks and its note issue shall be legal tender. This measure will make it possible to regulate credit in the interests of the whole population and thus undermine the domination of the big money men. 
Insofar as it gradually replaces gold and silver by paper money, it will reduce the cost of the indispensable instrument of bourgeois commerce, the universal means of exchange, and permit gold and silver to be used effectively abroad. Finally, this measure is needed in order to bind the interests of the conservative bourgeois to the revolution. It's fascinating. All means of transport, railways, canals, steamships, roads, posts, etc. shall be taken over by the state. They are to be transformed into state property and put at the free service of the needy. And in today's world, that would include the superhighways of the internet would become uh, state property. So what, I'm, what I mean by that is it would become worker-owned. So we have such like a twisted idea of like, when you say become state property, you're like, oh, the horror, the horror, you know, because the, all I've ever known and all we've ever known in our lives is the state is this oppressive, repressive bureaucracy that has a monopoly on violence and brutalizes us and oppresses us. But the dictatorship of the proletariat, the workers, the workers state, um, like I like how he says they are to be transformed into state property and put at the free service of the needy so that's the idea of like those who are capable of working work for the good of the collective and part of the reason for that is that so the least of these as Jesus would say or Dr. Cornell West always says it's so the least of these is taken care of by the collective so that people aren't falling through the cracks. It's scary. Like every night on my bike ride now to the river, I see more and more homeless people like in the shadows everywhere I look. It's, it's alarming to be honest, like how quickly and how like the fecundity of the reproduction of the homeless people like how much the how much the population has increased before my very eyes just over the past few months and they take over any sort of free any sort of unclaimed space so in south phoenix one of the things i like about it is because it is more industrial that has suppressed the grotesque overdevelopment and gentrification that's basically affecting every other neighborhood in in phoenix but of course south phoenix has a history of being separate from Phoenix. It was fairly recently absorbed into Phoenix and it's just a different vibe. So there's all these like open urban industrial spaces, not necessarily parks because deserts aren't really, deserts are, are kind of like thorny and sandy and, but like open thorny sandy spaces and you just see like tents upon tents upon tents. And that's in addition to like the set like tent city that we have downtown which is like a you know a fenced in area that's highly patrolled and and it's just like like every inch of space is occupied by a tent um it's it's alarming and so many people when i go onto the trail that goes down to the river there's like this open kind of parking lot space with a lot of like abandoned buildings and there's just like cars and cars and cars everyone is sleeping in cars there's like tents and mattresses beside the cars even like industrial like electrical boxes there's people like huddled behind the electrical boxes because it shields them from traffic so they they're less likely to be hassled by the cops when they pass and again this is another thing of like we don't need police to be hassling homeless people there's there's no need for that the problem is that the state 
refuses to put any resources into helping homeless people. And instead, they just pour more resources into the cops and tell the cops to deal with it. And the cops deal with things the only way they know how to, which is through like violence and repression and like ticketing people. And, you know, I see them like they move in and they just tear down these little shanty towns, basically. And then the, the, all the homeless people just have to f figure out somewhere else to go. It's not like they can just disappear. Anyway, it's, this is why I like to visualize utopia, y'all, because the current situation is a bit gnarly. Let's see if I want to read any more of these demands here. Ah, demand number 13, the complete separation of church and state. Clergymen of all denominations are to be paid only by their voluntary congregations. Number 15, the introduction of severely progressive taxation and the abolition of taxes on consumption. Amen to that, brother. Number 17, universal and free popular schooling. And he ends, it is in the interests of the proletariat, petty bourgeoisie, and peasantry to work energetically for the implementation of the above measures. For only through their realization can the millions who, up till now, have been exploited by a small handful and whom some will attempt to maintain in continued oppression get their entitlement and the power that is their due as the producers of all wealth. So that's you and that's me and that's all of us workers. We're the producers of all the wealth. We actually hold all the power, but our power is in our ability to collectively organize. And that's why collective organization is hunted relentlessly by the state, why you have spy cops and covert federal agents that infiltrate political organizations, both left-leaning and far-right. They infiltrate them and they are legally allowed to like, have prolonged long-term relationships with, say, like women in the organizations. They're legally allowed to sleep with the women and they're even legally allowed to father children with the women. So again, it's the question of like, who the fuck are these people and what is happening again? to where, yes, they can infiltrate. Say it's like, you know, the Scottsdale Maoist moms are getting together. <laughs> and, you know, they can be infiltrated and seduced and even like have, have a family with an agent of the state that is on a deployment to target the group to prevent any sort of collective organization of any kind across the entire spectrum. So hence, we're so atomized and, you know, like even the way this pandemic has played out, like how it's been leveraged to further atomize us, further separate us from each other, social distancing. I'm not calling any of it into question. I'm just saying pay attention to how it's being leveraged and utilized by the state. This emphasis on Zoom meetings, working from home, keeping everyone isolated, away from each other, unable to socialize, unable to gather. And that's why the BLM protests were, you know, so uh, repressed as violently as they were. Um, anyway, I've gone on long enough for this segment, so I'm going to sign off.
weekend, activists in Washington, D.C. updated a massive mural unveiled last week by Mayor Muriel Bowser on the two-block stretch of road that leads to the White House. Uh, what she had printed in enormous block letters that can be seen from space, Black Lives Matter, in yellow block letters, they put right next to it, defund the police, uh, referring, of course, to the whole movement now. Um, we are going to turn right now to Alex Vitale, who has long argued the answer to police violence is not reform, that it's defunding. He's a sociology professor at Brooklyn College, coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Program, author of the book of The End of Policing. Can you talk about uh, the whole defund the police movement in terms of the end of policing? What exactly you mean, Professor Vitale? Sure. So part of what we're dealing with here is a long story about the use of police and prisons to manage problems of inequality and exploitation. And this goes back, this is a story goes back hundreds of years. But we're also talking about a story of the last 50 years about neoliberal austerity and the way in which it has concentrated inequality in the United States, producing problems like mass homelessness and mass untreated mental illness and mass involvement in black markets because of economic precarity, and then using police to manage those problems. So we've seen this in incredible explosion of the scope of policing. And what the defund movement is talking about, and, and all your guests have just been amazing in their, in their discussions of this, is about rethinking not just what are police doing, but why are we using police to paper over problems of economic exploitation? And the defund movement, which was occurring in dozens of cities before the events in Minneapolis, is about concretely identifying police spending that could be shifted into specific targeted community interventions that will actually produce public safety without coercion, violence, and racism. Can you respond to what's happening in New York, the pressure that de Blasio has been feeling, the mayor, from community groups talking about cutting some of the budget of the police? And then, of course, this historic moment in Minneapolis where the city council says they have a um, veto-proof majority to dismantle the police department. Yeah, I think we're dealing with an, an economic, I'm sorry, a political earthquake here, right? That things that seem completely impossible two weeks ago are now being implemented. And while I agree with Linda, we cannot trust the mayor at all in this, we need to keep the pressure on the city council to follow through with these cuts and to make not just the cuts, but the reinvestments that communities have been begging for at a significant level. And the mayor has not been our partner in this endeavor. He has undermined our efforts. He has increase the police budget consistently during his mayorality, including adding 1,300 additional police to the headcount several years ago. So uh, this is, we have to keep the political pressure on. And the role of police unions, Alex. So, you know, you heard from Mr. Ellison lay out exactly what we're up against. It's not just the unions, it's not just their rank and file memberships. They become in many, many cities the locus, the institutional hub for a whole set of right-wing, thin blue line politics that believe that 
Policing is not only effective, but it's the most desirable way to solve our problems. And embedded in this is a deep racism that says that certain populations can only be managed through constant threats and coercion. It is the logic of slavery. It is the logic of colonialism. And we have to take concrete steps to dismantle their political power. And one of the most exciting things that I've seen this week was in New York, this effort to get politicians to reject those political donations and turn them over to bail funds and mutual aid projects. Alex Vitale, thanks so much for being with us. Brooklyn College professor, author of The End of Policing. about alternatives to our modern system of police that we don't try to reinvent the wheel. And I talk a lot about the Aboriginal Australian people, and it's because I lived with the Aboriginal Australian people for three months after I got my master's degree in Australia. And as I've said before in the podcast, it was really a shattering experience. Um, It completely devastated my worldview, and I feel like I'm still processing those three months. And it's difficult to describe like off the cuff kind of why that is but basically I sort of it hit me like a ton of bricks that everything I took for granted as like oh this is just the way it is is completely subjective and there are entirely different like entirely different ways of being in the world that are almost like not even acknowledged in our modern society like for example i have been researching for the past two hours trying to find the ancient astra uh, the ancient aboriginal australian system of law and criminal justice and there's hardly anything online i'm sure it exists somewhere but i can't find it so i'm gonna read a little bit from what i was able to find but it's very scarce but I did live with with the Aboriginal Australians and I talked to people and they did tell me that in the old days, at least, so I lived with the uh, Chintapurta people um, in the, or otherwise known as the Santa Teresa because Aboriginal Australians live on, unfortunately, reservations now. And everything is just like fresher, like the the wounds are, are fresher in Australia because 
the Aboriginal people were treated just as cruelly as the Indigenous American people, but it's like more recent, so you can feel it more. And what they, the Aboriginal folks told me is that in the old days, there, there were no prisons at all. There were no courts. There was not, none of that bullshit. There would be disputes, obviously, because anytime you have like human beings living together, even if they're, you know, living in harmony with the earth, which the Aboriginal Australian people were, they were living in complete harmony with the earth for 70,000 years. And there was very little warfare amongst the different peoples. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of different cultures and languages. Like the term Aboriginal Australian is kind of absurd because it's so vague. Like there was the ocean people on the west coast, the ocean people on the east coast, the ocean people on the south, the jungle people in the north, and then all the different desert peoples in the interior. And they all had different cultures, traditions, and languages, dialects, I should say. But there was very little intertribal warfare and they had really sophisticated techniques of maintaining um, genetic diversity. So I don't remember because it's so complicated, but I remember it was like a five-step process, like when they'd have gatherings of the tribes, which were kind of like fertility. It was a chance for young people to meet and, you know, enjoy themselves. And um, sounds like a good time to me. Uh, but there was, it had to be, in order to like, to have to find a mate to, to reproduce with someone you had to be like five steps removed from them and there was this complex system of like figuring out are it are you like far enough removed on a genetic level for us and that's how they maintained it it's really fascinating and actually orca whales have a similar system where when they come together for their fertility festivals all sorts of different pods come together and they they have different dialects the orcas do and they, the mates will choose based on how different the dialects are because that's a representation of the difference of the genetic structure to maintain genetic diversity. It's fucking awesome. So anyways, um, and, oh yeah, so <laughs> I got sidetracked there. So the Aboriginal Australian people, and this is what, what I was told by the people in Chintapurta, there were no prisons, there were no laws, there was no like incarceration. That was a completely foreign concept. And when someone did fuck up and they said that, that like, according to the oral history, most of the disputes had to do with like romance, like, you know, people fall in love and then people fall out of love and then people have affairs and it, it becomes a dispute sometimes. And when, if someone like did something really fucked up, like, you know, took someone else's wife without like consulting anyone or even like, you know, I think very rarely but sometimes someone would force themselves you know sexually on someone and that was seen as like the highest highest crime um but what they would do is they would take that person out into the bush the elders would go with the person who had committed the crime or who had kind of broken the taboo or acted disrespectfully or whatever take them out into the desert they would stand around the person the elders would stand around the person they had spears and they would describe in visceral detail to the person who had messed up how they messed up and the pain that they caused and have the person admit like in a sincere way that they understood the mistake and that they apologize and then the elders would spear the person they would hurl spears into the person who had messed up obviously non-lethally so like and they they were they knew human anatomy extremely well so they knew how to like 
you know, punish without permanently paralyzing or whatever, but they would literally hurl speed. So you got these elders. First, they like basically it's like your parents telling you they're disappointed in you. It like feels like shit. But then also there is like, yeah, like you, you fucked up. You have to pay some sort of price. So you get speared <laughs> by all these elders. But then after that, you are not just forgiven, but it is like forgotten. And it, it's understood this is like an accepted custom amongst all the people that after this sort of it's it's a ritual in a way. It's like a ritual of, of forgiveness, of purification. And after that point, then the person is reintegrated into the tribe and it's not spoken of and there's not like this stigma over that person. Like it's like they they paid the price, they learned the lesson, and now we move on as a community. So that's true, I, I would say, what restorative justice, that's true restorative justice is the idea of actual rehabilitation um, instead of, you know, what we have now, which is just basically like, it, it's it's for-profit. We have, a, we have a for-profit private prison industry, so it's, it's meant to generate money for people. So you, you put people in, it has nothing to do with actually rehabilitating, I guess is what I'm saying. And most people come out of American prisons like worse off mentally than when they went into them. And then also is to keep the cheap labor as Kamala Harris refused to release when she was DA in California. She refused to release all these prisoners who had been proven innocent. They had been proven innocent and she had been ordered by the Supreme Court of California to release the prisoners and Kamala King Harris refused to do so and she sent her lawyers she obstructed it in every possible way forcing these people to stay rotting in jail and her lawyers argued in court that they needed to keep the people in prison because they needed the cheap labor for California so that's who Kamala Harris is so have fun with that good little piggies who voted for her sorry I don't mean to be mean um anyways so I'm gonna read from this Again, this is like the best I could find on ancient um, Australian criminal or I guess you would say system of law. So this is from, um, it's an Australian government website, the Australian Law Reform Commission, alrc.gov.au. So the definition of Aboriginal customary laws. The phrase recognition of customary laws is a highly ambiguous one. This is true both of the term recognition and more obviously of the term aboriginal customary laws. With the composite phrase recognition of aboriginal customary laws, the ambiguities are multiplied. There are different ways in which a law or system of laws or values might be recognized. At a basic level, to say that Australian law should quote recognize aboriginal customary laws is to say that it should acknowledge their reality and existence, that it should take account of them as a phenomenon. This sense of, quote, recognition, though not a specifically legal one, is primary. Without this level of recognition, which implies at least some understanding or comprehension, questions of legal recognition cannot arise. The early Australian experience demonstrates this clearly. Despite the willingness of particular administrators or judges to take account of Aboriginal traditions and customary laws, the prevailing attitude was one of total non-recognition, accompanied in most cases by blank incomprehension. In the changed circumstances of today, the question at this primary level must be, what is it that is being recognized? And what are the implications of that recognition? 
These questions are not confined to recognition of Aboriginal customary laws. According to a recent study of the law and custom of the Tiswana, what is identified as customary law may be, quote, a loosely constructed repertoire rather than an internally consistent code, unquote. This was written of a society with an elaborate and much-studied body of rules and with developed formal institutions for resolving disputes. Aboriginal societies are, in a number of respects, very different. It is possible to say that they have a body, is it possible to say that they have a body of laws in any accepted sense? Characteristics of Aboriginal Customary Laws There are, as we have seen, no systematic accounts of Aboriginal Customary Laws as such. There are no manuals or handbooks. There is no code of customary law such as the Natal Code of Native, Native Law. But there is a large body of material on Aboriginal traditions and ways of life, including detailed studies of kinship, religion, and family structures. Whether this can be regarded as, quote, Aboriginal customary law may be thought a rather arid definitional question, and it is one to which lawyers and anthropologists in Australia and elsewhere have tended to give different answers. But it is necessary to distinguish clearly two separate questions. First, what are the shared norms, rules, values, or institutions accepted by particular Aboriginal groups? Second, whether some or all of that body of shared norms, rules, values, or institutions can properly be, be regarded as, quote, Aboriginal customary laws. As to the former question, there is a substantial agreement in principle. Although there is disagreement on some questions, and more is known about some groups than others. For example, there have been disagreements, or at least differences in emphasis, among anthropologists as to the existence of persons with instituted authority to resolve disputes. Elkin and Hebel emphasized the role of tribal elders or headmen. headmen. Megat acknowledged the existence of explicit social rules among the Walpiri, but in his view there did not appear to be any, quote, group of elders who exercised power. And this is a quote from Megat. In short, the community had no recognized political leaders, no formal hierarchy of government. People's behavior in joint activities was initiated and guided largely by their own acknowledgement and acceptance of established norms. So that's like a really deep thing, and I don't know if I have like the chops right now to, to really describe it, but it's the idea that we can't have a better society is, is brought into question by the fact that there have been other successful societies in human history. And the Aboriginal Australians, there was no recognized political leaders and no formal hierarchy of government, but people, vast majority of people, existed together in harmony and that was because they had their own acknowledgement and acceptance of established norms so that's like the power of culture and if we could create a different kind of culture where people took more personal responsibility for defense of their kin then i i truly deeply believe that there would just be less crime in general because you'd have a more egalitarian society people wouldn't be so desperate and people would feel like they mattered and like they counted and I think that would go a really long way to just lowering you know the amount of things that needed intervention in the first place so Hyatt said of the Gijin Gali quote there was no institution to deal with such disputes but there was a community of people with a set of common values and a system of formally defined rights and obligations. 
Although writers may disagree on particular issues, all agree that there existed in traditional Aboriginal societies a body of rules, values, and traditions, more or less clearly defined, which were accepted as establishing standards or procedures to be followed and upheld. Furthermore, these rules, values, and traditions continue to exist in various forms today. Why did you lie about the war? Too many precious lives lost. Uh huh, that's right. Too many precious lives lost. KRS M1, Dr. West. Why did you slide doing Katrina? Too many precious lives lost. That's right. Tell them more. Dear Mr. President, why do you cut funds for education and health care and child care uh-huh. and employment? Uh-huh. Too many precious uh-huh. lives lost. Oh, man. And I'm blessed to have two of the greatest prophetic uh-huh. hip-hop artists alive. See? M1 of dead prayers and my dear yeah, brother K.R.S. Right. Too many lies, too many wise, too many cover-up alibis. But about, but about, but about, but about. Too many ghetto children die. Not enough wisdom, not enough listening, not enough jobs for the ghetto citizen, not enough revolution televised. Yeah. Telling lies, who yeah. We ain't eating, we getting beaten, we leaking tears and bleeding, freaking numbers and cheating taxes. It's on with the proceedings. Your election was a selection, so we wait for your confession. It's a lie, like the police with that service and protection. See that don't do red, white, and blue, cause look what that can cost us. Every time I see that flag, I be throwing up your roster. RBG be reaching bigger goals. See, I'm so fiery, cause I'm speaking for the million ghetto children that's behind me. See, the you, I'm a number, and the me, you the enemy. This is working class related, black and brown, you kidding me. It's shooter selling the crack. But you locking the mob, people You expect me to vote for the lesser of two evils This is me talking to you, Mr. President This is us holding the news, Mr. President Your own play aiming at you, Mr. President Not a finger pointing at you, Mr. President Prices going up on the gas, Mr. President These some questions I need to ask, Mr. President Down with the skull and the bone, Mr. President Why they always tapping our phones, Mr. President Most of y'all afraid to talk Two planes unblaze New York and still no one is caught. The middle class taking the short. Education, healthcare, the airwaves, they all been bought. Don't tell me about equal opportunity. And if I work hard and follow my dreams, they'll all become true to me. That's a fairy tale. Work to point out ten black geniuses in every jail, every prison, every juvenile detention. Too many precious lives lost. Change the direction. Come on, walk with me, talk with me. In the streets, crime ain't all you see. Cause that's not how it ought to be. That's all these wannabe suburbanites they want to see. So we selling them the flesh on our back. We're not the only ones getting high. Check out the gas and the tax. You know them Texas boys down with the clan. Mr. President, better not invade our range. Mr. President, why you put us back in the hood? Mr. President, you know you ain't nothing no good. Mr. President, Trader King, we ain't see you. Mr. President, you don't care about black people. Mr. President, we need reparations is real. Mr. President, but you over in Israel. Mr. President, Dr. Corner West, taking you above the rest, not like all the rest. When you call his name, you call the best. Like when you call him KRS, you call him for metaphysical lyrics and hip hop at its best. I don't live life to guess, I study what I talk about. You don't like what I'm saying in this room, you can walk out, but you can't leave because you can't believe you in the presence of some real MCs like these. Real Mike Spitters, real club rippers, real money getters, five course dinners, on course, never lost winners. Even in the very beginning, I was no beginner. What? This is me talking to you, Mr. President. This is us holding the news, Mr. President. Your own plane aiming at you, Mr. President.
So the number one first reaction that uh, my, you know, liberal friends and family and acquaintances always say when I start to talk about abolishing the police is, what are you talking about? How are people going to take care of themselves? And I truly deeply believe that this sort of incredulity at the idea that society could exist without cops as we know them is it's a um, it's a socialized idea it, it's a function of the culture that we've been brought up in and it's certainly the way we're doing it is definitely not the best it's a terrible way to do I mean I'll just say it. it's a terrible way to do it that, like I said you don't need to have cops hassling homeless people you need people to help homeless people you don't need cops responding to mental health crises you need mental health professionals responding to mental health crises but they always bring up like, what are you going to do about like murderers, you know, psychopaths, people who are running amok, shooting everyone, what are you going to do? So first, I'm going to talk a little bit about my own ideas about that. And then I'm going to give an example of how they deal with that in Venezuela. Um, so when I think about this, when I allow my imagination to, to roam free on this topic, what I imagine is extremely well organized and well-trained and well-armed groups of neighborhood, what I like to call peace and wellness tribes. So you got, you can organize, let's say by blocks or, you know, by, by uh, city blocks, neighborhoods, however you want to like, you know, organize it in terms of logistically, like how many people are, are in the, the tribes. I'm imagining it wouldn't be a large number, like probably maybe 25 people her peace and wellness tribe and these folks get to know each other really well so it has to do first off has to do with like getting to know your neighbors trusting each other knowing the quirks and personalities of one another and really deeply respecting everyone um, you know even obviously some people are going to be better at certain things than other people and some people might be developmentally disabled and you know can help in in different ways but all these things are seen as as like attributes Not, nothing is seen as like this this deficiency everyone is honored for who they are so anyways everyone in the peace and wellness tribe would be trained in martial arts i'm thinking specifically brazilian jiu-jitsu they would be trained in weapons training collective defense so that that means like how would you not just like as an individual defend yourself, but how would you come together to defend yourself? Um, so I guess you could call it a militia, but I feel like that's kind of a loaded term. So I like to use the term peace and wellness tribe. <laughs> and then uh, firearms training as well. So when I say weapons training, I'm talking about like machetes, swords and knives. And firearms training, I'm talking about rifles, uh, machine guns and grenades mostly. And I was thinking that veterans could help to train and organize the peace and wellness tribes because they obviously have this enormous amount of experience and knowledge. For example, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who is an army veteran, and he was talking to me about how the squads would operate, how they would basically operate in, in the theater of war. So there would be a lead machine gunner, and he said that like the machine gunner is kind of like the centerpiece upon which the squad depends and rotates around the machine gunner they have the best weapon the most powerful weapon and so everything kind of revolves around them so the machine gunner kind of like lays out uh operation area by basically just like firing into a certain area and they don't even necessarily have to fire at anyone it's just the 
the intensity and the power and the intimidation factor of that of the machine gun kind of creates a space around it. And then you have the grenadiers, who and the the grenadiers apparently they, they have um, grenade launchers attached to their M4s, which is fucking badass. Can I just say that? I kind of really want one of those. Um, and what the grenadiers are used mostly for is to clear out. Uh, he, there was a term for it that I'm forgetting. It was something like blank space or dead space. I think it was dead space. They clear out dead space, and by that is like let's say there's. You got this area you want to secure, but there's like a huge boulder in the middle of the area, and you can't see behind the boulder. And there's like a chance that the enemy is hiding behind the boulder. You use the grenades to clear out that dead space by shooting the grenade over the boulder,、um, allowing the explosion to do its work. And if there's no one there, then fine. But if there are people there, they're going to be taken out of commission, and then you can proceed. And then after the grenadiers, you have the riflemen. So. In my vision of the peace and wellness tribes,、um, the tribes would own the means of production of the weaponry as well. So they could thus forge their own firearms. They could forge their own knives, tomahawks, machetes. They could make their own grenades, crossbows, and compound bows, etc. And <clears throat> the training and the creation of the manufacturing infrastructure would be subsidized by the state. And the state, of course, would be controlled by the workers in this scenario. So that's just, you know, that's just me kind of like taking ten minutes to think about it. I, I really don't see why that wouldn't be possible. It's been done in the past. I mean, it's done all the time. It's just we're trained to think of ourselves as powerless, and that to me is like the, the primary. I've said this a million times, but all this stuff, all of imagining a better world, it all hinges on an evolution of consciousness. And the primary sort of like nexus point, leverage point upon that evolution of consciousness is simply realizing that we are powerful beings. We're human beings. We're capable of a lot. We're not these weak little pathetic things that need everyone else to do everything for us. And you know. It's difficult right now because we are not trained. Like unless you pay for it yourself and it's really expensive, or you know someone like my dear friend Mona, shout out Mona, who will train you in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you're not trained in it. And unless you, you know, acquire a firearm and learn to shoot it, you're not trained in firearms training. Unless you have a machete and you practice with a tomahawk or an axe, you know. Then, if you do feel like yourself in physical danger, then you're like, "Oh, I have to call the cops. What else am I going to do?" So that attitude has to change, and it has to has to change to like, the best thing I can do to keep myself safe is to know who my neighbors are, to trust my neighbors, and to have a collective system of defense. And that's the neighborhood peace and wellness tribe. So now we're going to go. We're gonna take a, a, a jet plane and fly south down to Venezuela, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about. If you listen to the last Ricardo Vaz episode, he mentioned really briefly about the Hugo Chavez battle units, and these are essentially, it's like a form of what I just described with the neighborhood peace and wellness tribes.、Um, so I'm gonna read a little bit. It's it's almost impossible as an American to find in English unbiased information about this. So don't try to look it up because it's all a bunch of state propaganda talking about how socialism ruined the country, even though as we all know it's the brutal, horrific, murderous sanctions that we've been imposing, economic blockade that is making it difficult for the country. The socialism is actually helping them to survive the sanctions, but the state propaganda message is. Look, that socialism is is not 
managing Venezuela properly. They don't talk about the fact that like they they have to like smuggle oil in from Iran that has to like travel through you know U.S. naval patrol ships and just hope they don't get shot down. It's pretty crazy. Anyways, back to what I was talking about. So the uh, Hugo Chavez battle units. Um, their acronym is UBCH. And it's a collective of organizations with multiple members of the PSUV, which is the Venezuelan Socialist Party. Um, and it has both military and political characteristics. So the UBCH, or the Hugo Chavez Battle Units, originated as a group to defend the Bolivarian Revolution and support the PSUV through electoral processes in Venezuela. So they give an example of the 2014 Venezuelan protests. During the 2014 Venezuelan protests, the Venezuelan government called on the UBCH to counter those protesting against the Venezuelan government. And of course, those protests were largely uh, the, the upper middle class and the militias that are paid for by the upper middle class supported by the U.S. Um, it was not the majority of the country, but it was a well-funded, because of American support, um, minority that was creating a lot of noise. Um, so th- that's that's who was actually protesting. And on February 16, uh, Nicolas Maduro confirmed that the president of the National Assembly, Diosado Cabello, was to oversee the deployment of PSUV throughout the country for peace efforts during the protests. Later that day, the governor of Carabobo State, Francisco Ameliac, tweeted on tweeted on Twitter, I was about to say, stated on Twitter, UBCH, get ready for the fulminating counterattack. Diosado will give the order. Hashtag respect. Days later, in the capital city of Carabobo State, Valencia, armed individuals on motorcycles appeared at a protest. Genesis Carmona, uh, blah, blah, blah. On March 5th, President Maduro also called on multiple governments supporting groups himself, with such groups in court, including the UBCH and Colectivos, which he ordered to make sure the protests were extinguished. All right, so tasks. The UBCH have vehicles, radios, and resources to respond to any call made by the Venezuelan government. According to Elias Jawa, a leader of the PSUV, members of the UBCH must study the Chavista doctrine, must be responsible for mobilization, political action, including using propaganda about the achievements of the Bolivarian Revolution, take place in government projects for communities, and to combat enemies of the Bolivarian Revolution in all fields. So the Hugo Chavez battle units have Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments of the UBCH, according to the PSUV, sorry about all the acronyms, y'all, but... Basically, the Ten Commandments of the battle units according to the socialist government are the following. Number one, study and practice the teaching and ethics and politics of Chavez. Two, strengthen and expand more and more in the forefront of the unit. Three, take a historic commitment to be at the forefront of the drive and organization of all social and political forces of the revolution in the community level to strengthen the people's government. Four, Be a permanent element of propaganda and mobilization around the country to publicize and promote the achievements and future plans of the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela. 5. Defend achievements of the revolution and fight in any terrain against enemies of the fatherland together with the national armed forces. 6. Exercise social control tasks in the community. 7. 
a commitment to be at the forefront of building the Homeland Homes Network in the community and house-to-house visits. Eight, being the link between the community and the revolutionary government to achieve the solution of the most sensitive problems and actively participate in the street government program of the national government. Nine, a commitment to be at the forefront in shaping the people's struggle and good living circles. And 10, organize and accomplish tasks to win elections at all levels. And these neighborhood battle units were one of the main reasons why Venezuela was able to handle the pandemic so well, because they had this very, very clear and sleek sort of logistics and communication all the way from the very top of the people's government all the way down, you know, regional, all this stuff, down to like each particular block, which has the the leader of the the battle unit, which then, you know, it's it's a really good, everyone's on the same page, I guess is what I'm saying. And so it's, it's much easier to distribute, you know, make sure people have food so they don't have to go out and um, so they can properly social distance. And then when it's time to uh, distribute the vaccine to make sure it's like a smooth, distribution of of the vaccine and all the rest so anyways these are just some examples of um some some real material nitty-gritty alternatives um in a world where we don't have the cops as we know them following is the audio of Yancy Jameson from the Black Visions Collective, and she's speaking at a Black Lives Rally protest on June 4th, 2020, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. George Floyd really has been a catalyst for pushing these larger demands of divesting from the police and abolishing the police. You know, we've seen like, what, five to ten different organizations cut ties with the police already, so really it's, it's feeling like we're getting nearer to liberation and it just hurts that, you know, it has to come at the expense of like people's lives being lost, but, you know, again, it's a catalyst and I feel like we're trying to, to organize around that and I really love the outpouring of just support, the resource, the networking, the mutual aid. I feel like that's really the coming together. We were just talking about how like, if there's always this much food and water, like why can't we just always have it like this? You know what I'm saying? We we have the capacity to, to create these mechanisms that are keeping each other safe and fed and, and taken care of. Can you give us a synopsis of what you think a world without police looks like? Definitely just money going into mental health services. I'm talking like, therapists, counselors, you know, family therapists, relationship therapists, like really giving mental health the funding and the and the attention that it needs. And really when we talk about abolishing the police and like transformative justice, really transforming the conditions that that allow for crime to happen and allow for injustices to happen. So when we're building up these super tight support networks of getting people the food that they need, making sure people have money to pay rent, making sure people are right in their minds and, and having the healing and holistic health that they need, I feel like when we push all of those just kind of general wellness, that sets the groundwork to be able to abolish the police. And, and when we say that we're going to transform the conditions that we live in to, to allow us to be our best selves, I feel like that's, that's what's going to be the potential for us to like not need this sort of oppressive militaristic force on us already. So definitely 
plugging into mental health sources, um, plugging into kind of like restorative justice community based like uh, forums, whatnot. You know, all of this is really like I love the imagining portion because I feel like it's really hard for people to imagine what, what life is like outside of the police. It's easy for people to imagine like the end of the world, but how do you imagine a utopia for yourself? You know what I'm saying? So just imagine a world where everybody has everything that they need. And it's like, why would you need police if we're all taking care of if nobody has to steal and shit on other people? On TV, they be talking about who you gonna vote for. Got a black man running, but I wonder if he get in, who he gonna open up the door for? I don't wanna discourage my folk. I believe in hope. I just want us to want more. Politics is a game. How they keep us contained? They gotta be more than we can hope for. Democrats and Republicans, just two sides of the same coin. Either way, it's still white power. It's the same system, just change form. You wanna vote? Please do. Cash your ballot. Let your voice be heard. But what I do want to say is after the election, you'll see, mark my word. It's politics time again. It's politics time again. It's politics time again. Shoot the messenger. This is the most important election of all times. The government committing the biggest of all crimes. These bullshit politicians say they speaking for the people. Before they ran for office, they were cheating all the people. Billion dollar campaign, trillion dollar bailout. Anybody know the definition of a sellout? And if Obama win, he wouldn't be the first black. Take your two dollar bill and turn it over to the back. Right there. But with the TV on, you only hearing they voice. The system is broken, they trying to be the dead horse. Go ahead and vote for the lesser of two evils. I plot, plan, and strategize with the poor people. The middle class will say this opinion is irresponsible. If you ain't got no healthcare, they kicking you out the hospital. McKinney Clemente up in the Green Party. No disrespect, we need a red, black, and green party. Like Marcus Garvey. It's politics time again. It's politics time again. It's politics All right, y'all, what's up? Uh, please excuse the subwoofer in the background. It is noon on Friday, and the party is getting started here in South Phoenix. So maybe it'll be a little subwoofer ASMR in the background if we're lucky. This segment, I want to briefly describe the concept of restorative justice. So many of you have probably heard about restorative justice, but you might not know exactly what it is. Myself, I knew it was a thing and I had heard the term thrown around, but I just kind of thought it was like a nice sounding term. I didn't really know too much about what it actually is. And like all this stuff, there you know, has been a lot of really, really intense and mindful and deep work on the topic. Um, by really smart people for a long time. So this is a brief overview of what, what is restorative justice. And I'm gonna be drawing from a YouTube video about restorative justice and also a website, restorativejustice.org. And again, this is like an extremely brief topical primer, so I encourage everyone to dig in, even just by visiting restorativejustice.org. They've got a lot, a lot of info um, on the concept if you wanna dig deeper. So, <clears throat> so what is restorative justice? Restorative justice views crime as more than breaking the law. It also causes harm to people, relationships, and the community. So a just response must address those harms as well as the wrongdoing. If the parties are willing, the best way to do this is to help them meet to discuss those harms and how to build about resolution. Other approaches are available if they are unable or unwilling to meet. Sometimes those meetings lead to transformational changes in their lives. Notice three big ideas. One, repair. 
Crime causes harm and justice requires preparing that harm. Crime that causes harm and justice requires preparing that harm. Two, encounter. The best way to determine how to do that is to have the parties decide together. And three, transformation. This can cause fundamental changes in people, relationships, and communities. A more formal definition is this. Restorative justice is a theory of justice that emphasizes repairing the harm caused by criminal behavior. It is best accomplished through cooperative processes that allow all willing stakeholders to meet, although other approaches are available when that is impossible. This can lead to transformation of people, relationships, and communities. The foundational principles of restorative justice have been summarized as follows. 1. Crime causes harm and justice should focus on repairing that harm. Very similar to the Hawaiian Ho'oponopono concept. 2. The people most affected by the crime should be able to participate in its resolution. 3. The responsibility of the government is to maintain order and of the community to build peace. If restorative justice were a building, it would have four corner posts. 1. Inclusion of all parties. 2. Encountering the other side. 3. Making amends for the harm. And 4. Reintegration of the parties into their communities. And again, you can see similarities between how the Aboriginal Australian people in Chintapurda dealt with um, crime as well. So to review, restorative justice is a different way of thinking about crime and our response to crime. It focuses on repairing the harm caused by crime and reducing future harm through crime prevention. It requires offenders to take responsibility for their actions and for the harm they have caused. It seeks redress for victims, recompense by offenders, and reintegration of both within the community. And it requires a cooperative effort by communities and the government. Yo. up you dapper ducklings we're gonna get right back into this episode of the bmp but first a quick word from today's sponsor yeah today's episode of the barbarian noetics podcast is brought to you by socks wool or cotton ankle or knee socks when you need something to cover your feet but before you put on your shoes socks they keep your feet warm Socks. All right, thanks so much to Socks for sponsoring today's episode, and now back to the show. upside down. What was once normal and familiar no longer feels safe. 
and the criminal justice process can be daunting and complicated, leaving those who have been harmed feeling excluded and in need of answers. Restorative justice can change this. Restorative justice gives victims the opportunity to communicate with the offender, to express how they have been affected by the crime, and gives the chance to have unanswered questions resolved. Restorative justice is completely optional, and it can only happen if both parties agree to take part, and any party can stop the process at any time if they are not comfortable with it, or if they just need a break. And restorative justice works. The vast majority of victims are happy with the process, and re-offending rates for offenders who take part in the process are exceptionally low. It's not about passing judgment, it's about repairing the harm that has been done with a unique process which allows those taking part to regain a sense of control, drawing a line under whatever has happened, so they can look to the future and move on with their lives. Since the process, I'm no longer a victim. I'm really glad I did it. We felt like somebody actually really cared about us for the first time. It really affected me. I saw the effects of my actions. Everyone has the ability to change. Restorative justice helps people move on with their lives. Alright y'all, I'm going to read this article that I found really helpful and concise and cogent. It comes from rollingstone.com and it's called Six Ideas for a Cop-Free World. It's written by Jose Martin on June 2nd, 2020. After months of escalating protests and grassroots organizing in response to the police killings of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, police reformers have issued many demands. The moderates in this debate typically qualify their rhetoric with, quote, we all know we need police, but, unquote. It's a familiar refrain to those of us who've spent years in the streets and the barrios, organizing around police violence, only to be confronted by officers who snarl. But who will help you if you get robbed? We can put a man on the moon, but we're still lacking creativity down here on Earth. Police are not a permanent fixture in society. While law enforcers have existed in one form or another for centuries, the modern police have their roots in the relatively recent rise of modern property relations 200 years ago and the, quote, disorderly conduct, unquote, of the urban poor. Like every structure we've known all our lives, it seems that the policing paradigm is inescapable and everlasting and the only thing keeping us from the precipice of a dystopic Wild West scenario. It's not. Rather than be scared of our impending road warrior future, check out just a few of the practicable, real-world alternatives to the modern system known as policing. Number one, unarmed mediation and intervention teams. Unarmed but trained people, often formerly violent offenders themselves, patrolling their neighborhoods to curb violence right where it starts. This is real and it exists in cities from Detroit to Los Angeles. Stop believing that police are heroes because they are the only ones willing to get in the way of guns or knives. So are the members of groups like Cure Violence, who were the subject of the 2012 documentary The Interrupters. 
There are also feminist models that specifically organize patrols of local women who reduce everything from catcalling and partner violence to gang murders in places like Brooklyn. While police forces have benefited from military-grade weapons and equipment, some of the most violent neighborhoods have found success through peace rather than war. Number two, the decriminalization of almost every nonviolent crime. What is considered criminal is something too often debated only in critical criminology seminars and too rarely in the mainstream. Violent offenses count for a fraction of the 11 to 14 million arrests every year. And yet there is no real conversation about what constitutes a crime and what permits society to put a person in chains and a cage. Decriminalization doesn't work on its own. The cannabis trade that used to employ poor blacks, Latinos, indigenous, and poor whites in its distribution is now starting to be monopolized by already rich landowners. That means that wide-scale decriminalization will need to come with economic programs and community projects. To quote investigative journalist Christian Parenti's remarks on criminal justice reform in his book Lockdown America, what we really need most of all is, quote, less, unquote. Three, restorative justice. Also known as reparative or transformative justice, these models represent an alternative to courts and jails. From hippie communes to the IRA and anti-apartheid South African guerrillas to even some U.S. cities like Philadelphia's experiment with community courts, spaces are created where accountability is understood as a community issue and the entire community, along with the so-called perpetrator and the victim of a given offense, try to restore and even transform everyone in the process. It has also been used uninterrupted by indigenous and Afro-descendant communities like San Basilio de Palenque in Colombia for centuries, and it remains perhaps the most widespread and far-reaching of the alternatives to the adversarial court system. I would add also that the Hawaiians in their Ho'oponopono, which translates to making perfect rightness, also utilize a form of restorative justice. Four, direct democracy at the community level. Reducing crime is not about social control, it's not about cops, and it's not a bait-and-switch with another callous institution. It's giving people a sense of purpose. Communities that have tools to engage with each other about problems and disputes don't have to consider what to do after antisocial behaviors are exhibited in the first place. A more healthy political culture where people feel more involved is a powerful building block to a less violent world. Five community patrols. This one is a wild card. Community patrols have dangerous racial overtones, from pogroms to the KKK to George Zimmerman. But they can also be an option that replaces police with affected community members when police are very obviously the criminals. In Mexico, where one of the world's most corrupt police forces has only has credibility as a criminal syndicate, there have been armed groups of Policia Comunitaria and Autodefensas, organized by local residents for self-defense from narco-traffickers, femicide, and police. Obviously, these could become police themselves and then be subject to the same abuses, but as a temporary solution, they have been making a real impact. Power corrupts, but perhaps in Mexico, withering power won't have enough time to corrupt. And six, real mental health care. In 2012, Mayor Rahm Emanuel closed up the last trauma clinics in some of Chicago's most violent neighborhoods. In New York, Rikers Island jails as many people with mental illnesses 
quote, as all 24 psychiatric hospitals in New York State combined, unquote, which is reportedly 40% of the people jailed at Rikers. We have created a tremendous amount of mental illness, and in the real debt and austerity dystopia we're living in, we have refused to treat each other for our physical and mental wounds. Mental health has often been a trapdoor for other forms of institutionalized social control, as bad as any prison, but shifting toward preventive, supportive, and independent living care can help keep those most impacted from ending up in handcuffs or dead on the street. So there you go. Six Ideas for a Cop-Free World by Jose Martin. And I would add that in a utopian post-police society, people who are different, who are touched, who have, you know, perhaps would be identified in our modern society as schizoid or having schizophrenic tendencies or multiple personalities, I believe these people are actually spiritual powerhouses. They're tuned into other dimensions and they should be honored as they were in many indigenous societies around the world. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn This is a show tune, but the show hasn't been written for it yet Hound dogs on my trail School children sitting in jail Black cat cross my path I think every day's gonna be my last Lord have mercy on this land of mine We all gonna get it in due time I don't belong here, I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in Don't tell me, I'll tell you Me and my people just about do I've been there so I know Keep on saying, go slow But that's just the trouble Washing the windows
bet you thought I was kidding. And picket lines, school boycotts. They try to say it's a communist plot. All I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. Yes, you lied to me all these years. You told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady. And you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie. Oh, but this whole country is full of lies. You all gonna die and die like flies. I don't trust you anymore. You keep on saying, go slow. Go slow. Well, that's just the trouble. Desegregation. Mass participation. Unification. So I fantasize pretty often about what U.S. presidents, past and current, would I most like to punch in the face. And the answer, honestly, is all U.S. presidents. I'd like to punch every single one in the face. But I still like to play the game of, like, a genie comes to me and it's like the puncher president in the face genie. It's like... I can grant you one wish and one wish only, but the wish must involve punching a president in the face. Which president should you choose? And the answer for me is, may surprise you. Sorry, by the way, I'm on my bicycle, so I'm kind of huffing and puffing. You're going to hear traffic and who knows what else. It's probably a helicopter going overhead too. Um, which president would I choose? And the answer is Harry Truman. Harry Truman was an absolute fucking asshole. I really fucking loathe that guy. So, people don't realize that, obviously, he dropped the two atomic bombs, which did not need to be dropped. Even within his own defense department, there was a lot of voices that were questioning his decision to drop the bombs because at the point of the war in which he chose to drop the bombs, Japan was isolated, they were defeated, it was, it didn't need to happen. It could have been avoided. But he was a sadistic prick. So he decided to drop the, he also probably had a small dick and he wanted to prove something. He enjoys causing pain, like all US presidents really enjoy causing pain. Something that people don't realize about Barack Obama, but he's a straight up sadist. I can see it in his eyes. Um, he, I don't think he was always a sadist, but as he got deeper and deeper into the throes of power, halls of power, and he made more and more compromises and more and more Faustian uh, bargains. By the end, he, was, he became an angry, vindictive 
little shit. I mean, if we remember what how he was towards Edward Snowden, he was obsessed with Edward Snowden. Obama was so obsessed with finding and capturing Edward Snowden so that they could torture him and imprison him forever. I mean, that's what would have happened to Edward Snowden if they had gotten their hands on him. That he grounded Evo Morales's presidential plane, the Bolivian president, Evo Morales, because he's a socialist. Obama figured like, oh, he must be harboring Snowden. They had no reason to suspect it at all. But it, uh, straight up, Evo Morales is going about his day in the presidential jet. And then all of a sudden, two like US jet fighters are alongside him. And they're like, you better land this plane right now. Or we're going to shoot you. That's the lengths that Obama went to get his hands on Snowden. After campaigning that he was going to be so a president who, you know, respected whistleblowers and protected whistleblowers, that was his campaign promise. He instead became the most aggressive whistleblower hunter of any president to that time. And still to this day, no other president has gone after whistleblowers more ferociously than Barack Obama. And a lot of that is because his right-hand man throughout his whole presidency was John Brennan. And John Brennan is the epitome of evil. He's a lizard person. He honestly deserves the guillotine. And he was the head of the CIA during Obama's presidency. And Obama had a hard-on for the CIA. Obama loves the national security state, just like all presidents do, Trump did. In terms of like, I can hear some of you thinking, why wouldn't you want to punch Trump? And the answer is, same reason I don't really feel like I want to punch Jabba the Hutt. Like Jabba the Hutt was a despicable figure, but he was like a creature. He was like a gross creature. Like I don't think of Donald Trump as a human, really. I know probably that's not very enlightened of me to like literally dehumanize him, but he just, I can't imagine, I can't imagine Donald Trump doing like, things that normal people do like even just try to imagine like Donald Trump fishing like I can't imagine him like trying to bait a hook or do anything that's why he never threw out the first pitch because he I don't think he can throw so for me it's like I don't really want to punch Donald Trump I just kind of want to like not think about him anymore and not have him dominate the national conversation because he's gross like Jabba Anyways, Harry Truman. So, Harry Truman was a limp dick little prick. And if I could go back in time, I'd punch him right in his spectacles fucking face. And the number one reason is because he is the one, in 1947, under the National Security Act of 1947, he created the Central Intelligence Agency. The most murderous, brutalizing, cabal, of organized crime that the world has ever seen. They've done things that are so unspeakable, I don't even wanna think about them or recount them here. Latin America has gotten the worst, in my opinion. Latin America and Iran have gotten the worst of the murderous impulses of the CIA. And that organization is pretty new in American history, created by Harry Asshat Truman, in 1947. So, Harry Truman, go fuck yourself. All right, that's all I got to say.
of Ginauda Petrus reading her poem, Give the Police Departments to the Grandmothers. This is dedicated to all the grandmothers, the aunties, the uncles, the caregivers, the elders, the people who witness us um, and care for us. Um, I believe in a visionary world where we could care for each other first and foremost. Um, and I wrote this poem five years ago after Michael Brown's um, murderer was not indicted. And um, Michael Brown to me was such a sweet, tender looking boy. Um, and this man characterized him um, as though he was almost monster-like and was so terrifying. And I thought, you know, if these police are so afraid of us, who can be around us that's not afraid of us? And I wrote this poem. Could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers? Could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers, give them the salaries and the pensions and the city vehicles, but make them a fleet of vintage Corvettes, Jaguars and Cadillacs with white leather interior, diamond in the back, sunroof top, dig in the scene with the gangsta lean. Let the cars be bad ass. You would hear the old school jams like Patti LaBelle, Anita Baker, and Al Green. You would hear Sweet Honey and The Rock harmonizing on We Who Believe in Freedom Will Not Rest, bumping out the speakers, and they got the booming system. If you up to mischief, they will pick you up swiftly in their sweet ride and look at you until you catch shame and look down at your lap. She asks you if you are hungry and you say yes, and of course you are. She got a crown of dreadlocks and on the dashboard you see brown faces like yours, shea buttered and loved up. And there are no precincts, just love temples that got spaces to meditate and eat delicious food, mangoes, blueberries, nectarines, cornbread, peas and rice, fried plantain, Fufu, yams, greens, ochre, pecan pie, salad, and lemonade. Things that make your mouth water and soul arrive. All the hungry bellies know warmth. All the children expect love. The grandmas help you with homework, practice yoga with you, and teach you how to make jambalaya and coconut cake from scratch. When you're sleepy, she will start humming and rub your back while you drift off. A song that you used to have the record of when you were her age. She remembers how it felt like to be you and be young and not know the world that good. Grandma is a sacred child herself who just circled the sun enough times into the ripeness of her cronehood. She wants your life to be sweeter. When you wildin' out because your heart is broke, or you don't have what you need, the grandmas take your hand and lead you into their gardens. You can lay down amongst the flowers, her grasses, roses, dahlias, irises, lilies, collards, kale, eggplants, blackberries. She wants, to, she wants you to know that you are safe and protected, universal, limitless, sacred, sensual, divine, and free. Grandma is the original warrior wild since birth, comfortable and loving fiercely. She has fought so that you don't have to, not in the same ways at least. 
So give the police departments to the grandmas. They're fearless, classy, and actualized. Blossom from love. They wear what they want and they say what they please. Believe that. There wouldn't be no noise citations when the grandmas ride through our streets, blasting Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Marvin Gaye, Alex Coltrane, Jimi Hendrix, Karis One, all that good music. The kids get a hula hoop to it and sell her lemonade made from heirloom pink lemons and maple syrup. The car is solar powered and carbon footprintless. The grandmas designed the technologies themselves. At night, they park the cars in a circle so all can sit in them with the sunroofs down and look at the stars, talk about astrological signs, what to plant tomorrow based on the moon's mood, and help you memorize Audre Lorde and James Baldwin quotes. She always looks you in the eye and acknowledges the light in you with no hesitation or fear. And grandma loves you fiercely forever. She sees the pain in our bravado the confusion in our anger, the depth behind our coldness. Grandma knows what oppression has done to our souls and is gonna change it one love temple at a time. She has no fear. So I hope all of y'all are staying safe and knowing that this spark is smoldering bold and bright and is not going anywhere. Um, we can achieve a reality where we do not have police policing us, but that we have an abundance of everybody being cared for. We've already seen our city feed people and house people and give people what they need. And it was there. The resources were there. So let's keep on thinking of how we could not continue to allow capitalistic greed and white supremacy to drain and vampire off of society and that we could truly live an abundant, delicious, yummy life surrounded in sweet love and abundant, sensuous elders and all kinds of freedom and liberation for Black people. I love you all.
So in conclusion, we can create a cop-free society. And I've broken it down into four steps, four foundational steps that each of us can begin to participate in. The first step, and the most important one in my opinion, is opening your mind and unlocking your imagination and believing that another better world is possible. The second step is educating yourself on the many deeply researched ideas and theories, many of which that have already been tried out in the real world and have worked, that have already been crafted by police abolitionists for decades. The third step is to stop seeing yourself as a helpless bystander who needs to call for help and start really internalizing your own sovereign power and self-determination. And finally, the fourth step is to materially equip yourself for self-reliance and self-defense by learning a martial art and acquiring weapons and firearms training. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. Peace. What's up, you barbarian philosophers? Calling all barbarian philosophers. It's the end of the show as we know it. It's the end of the show, y'all, and you know what that means. It means your prize for making it through to the very end, for sticking with me through the ups, through the downs, through the what-have-yous. So the other day I was uh, riding on my bicycle, no surprises there, and right as I was about to go into the gym, there's a mailbox next to the gym, and there was a book just like perched on top of the mailbox. And I swear the book had like an aura around it, and I was like, oh, that book is meant for me. And I picked it up, and it's this book called The Living Energy Universe by Gary Schwartz and Linda Russick. And uh, so that's the book that I'm going to be turning to a random page and reading from today to finish off the show. So turning to a random page. Random page. Random page. All right, I got you. All right, sweet. I turned to a poem that they wrote. What, pray tell, are spirit and soul? Are they one and the same? Are soul and spirit a functional whole, derived from a common name? Or is it the case that spirit and soul reflect two sides of a coin, where soul reflects information that fits, and spirit, energy, that joins? Is soul the story, the plan of one's life, the music we play, the score? Is spirit the passion, the fire of life, our motive to learn, to soar. Soul represents the paths we take, the visions that structure our flow. Spirit feels very alive, awake, the force that moves us to grow. If soul is plan and spirit is flame, 
then matter is alive, you see. Nature may play a majestic game of information and energy. I'd love to believe that wisdom and joy reflect God's plans and dreams, that soul and spirit are more than toys and both more than they seem. Could it be that the soul of God is the wisest of plans so grand and the spirit of God is the lightning rod that inspires God's loving hand? Could soul be wisdom and spirit be love, together a divine partnership? Purpose and passion, a duet from above, the ultimate relationship? The relationship to, of spirit to soul, so simple, profound this team. Through spirit and soul, our ultimate goal, to understand this theme. Soul as wisdom, spirit as love, information, energy, enlightened compassion, the flight of the dove. Someday, pray tell, we'll see. And then they say after that, <clears throat> it is our hypothesis that these words reflect more than just poetry. They are an artistic expression of a foundational theory. If soul and spirit can be likened to information and energy, then it logically follows that we can apply this premise to the systemic memory process and consider this question. If information and energy are stored in a system and the info-energy, the integrative combination, is stored dynamically and eternally, does this imply that the soul and spirit continue to exist in physical objects and even in the absence of physical scaffolds? The answer is most definitely yes. The systemic memory process may be the soul and spirit in all systems and hence be the living, the universal living memory process. All right, y'all. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you, as always, for joining, for supporting the BMP. I really appreciate each one of you. Thank you to my glorious patrons. You guys are the best. If you would like to join the hollowed ranks of the patrons, my beneficent masters who wield the rod of discipline my, upon my creative output, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash noetics and kind of propel me on my journey to Central America. And, uh, and I would be eternally grateful to you all. And you get bonus content when you sign up. However, you can also support the show in many free ways. The most important thing is just to spread the word and tell a friend about the BMP. That's the best way that I can grow my audience. Also, rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. That boosts the almighty algorithm, which is the answer to all prayers, as we all know. And, uh, yeah. That's, that about does it for today, y'all. So until next week, be good to yourselves and be good to each other. And I send lots of blessings from the cloudy desert to wherever you may be. My dear brother Prince, Take he care. shows deep love and I embrace it. He is the artistic genius in our midst. He is a musical artist among us. Raise your Socratic questions to the system. Bear witness to justice against the system. Be true to who you are and be true to the grand vision that keeps track of the least of these. Break it down, Brother Prince. What's wrong with the world?
world today Things just got to get better Show me what you need to say uh, Maybe we should write a letter Said, dear Mr. Man We don't understand Why poor people keep struggling But you don't lend a helping hand Matthew 5, 5, say The meek shall inherit the earth We wanna be down that way been tripping since a day of your birth. Who said? Who says that to kill is a sin? It's not to ever sink a wall that your people beat in. Who says that water uh, is a precious commodity? Then dropped a big old black oil set in the deep blue sea. Who told me, Mr. Man, that working around the clock? Of these, the most vulnerable among us, they are. 